0: hello internet this is yes insight calling i'm ewan spence and i'm golden Roxburgh. and this is a bfi this is a bfi infused this is terrible and this is don't laugh oh i'll just start the music BFI infused cup of coffee as we chat over it. Got it. Yes. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good evening. Ewan Spence here, getting the opening slightly wrong on that one, but hey, sometimes it happens. And there we go. Joining me now for a chat over coffee, Gordon Roxburgh. Hello, Gordon. Hello, Ewan. Uh, it's Dower Scotsman with Dower Scotsman. This could be interesting. Indeed, indeed. But this Scotsman's living down in London at the moment and has done for 40 years. <laughs> it's OK. We still have a place for you when the vote is successful. But enough of that. Let's <laughs> BFI is hosting a big Eurovision event, which you're involved in. And just set the scene for us. What's this event? What's going on?
1: Well, it's marking also the fact that the BBC is celebrating its 100th anniversary. And the the BFI, I'm getting as bad as you now, have uh, decided to uh, they've a hundred game changers, a hundred programs which they reckon over the years have changed the way you know, with television, including such programs as Monty Python, Doctor Who, and Eurovision Song Contest crops up in that list, and that's actually going to be the first event that kind of launches the the seasons about well for the BFI. And my involvement goes back a couple of years because uh, on eBay up came our real to reel audio tape of the 1962 Eurovision Song Contest with David Jacobs' commentary, which had a little sample on it in the auction. And I thought, that sounds good. I knew that it didn't exist in the BBC archives. So I thought, right, I'm going to make a, a bid for this. In fact, I did even went beyond that. I actually got in touch with the sale and said, would you consider take, you know, taking an offer on this item? And he said, yes, agreed a price, for a reasonable price. Which I thought was fair considering that's on an archaic format that nobody really has real to real take recorders anymore. So, not every potential buyer would be able to play it back. So, based on that, I made an offer. He accepted, he put it as a, a buy it now, changed it, I snapped it up. So, eBay did get their commission, okay? There was no shenanigans going on there. And uh, obviously, I said, I want it same, signed for, you name it, recorded. It, Insurance-wise, a whole lot. Which he did. I had forgotten of course because the seller was actually in America that so of course a sales tax to add on top of that so that kind of bumped the price up a little bit more than expected. I also asked him if he had any more possible recordings. He said no he bought it and he, his interest was US radio shows. He bought a box of tapes in a boot sale junk shop who knows and this was like an oddity you know it wasn't a US radio show so that's why I put it in for auction so tape julie arrived because i'm just looking at it there's nothing i can actually do with it you know i can't play it back but i do have some colleagues in the bbc who can including uh, richard latto bbc producer and uh, bbc south so arranged to meet him because i wasn't going to put it in the post handed it physically over to him and said uh, let me know so he sent it off to one of his engineer colleagues and the report came back you know, he said yeah it's all sounding pretty good so eventually when it was all transferred, they sent me a digital file and I was able to sit and listen back to the whole show. And, yeah, I was impressed by the quality. I thought,
0: well, that's great.
1: It's very nice. I've got that in my collection. But it's not really what it was ever designed for. It was a commentary to a TV show. So I knew that uh, the BFI did uh, Missing believed, White Seasons for the show and you know, recovered material from, from programmes.
0: We should just probably pitch in there for people outside of the, the UK circles that a lot of BBC programming from the 50s and 60s and the 70s was junked because tape was so expensive. So a lot of history has been lost.
1: Indeed, you're quite right there. And one of the programs that was missing was Eurovision Song Contest 1962. They had a few others from the 60s, but not that particular one. So I got in touch with Dick Fiddy, the BFI, and said, look, this is an ideal candidate for, for a missing believed white. So, but it needs to match up the audio along with the existing pictures because I think Dutch television and French television had copies of, of the Eurovision 62 and I think the BBC retained, you know, kept all of one of them just for reference purposes that they could use for clip shows, etc. So I said, wouldn't it be great they could match the soundtrack with the picture, do a full reconstruction and we could show it a missing believed white. And I knew the technology was possible because I've done it with things like Doctor Who in the past. And he said, yeah, sounds a good idea. He said, how long is it? I said, well, I can tell. It's exactly 86 minutes and so many seconds, which, of course, is a fairly long session for for the BFI. But he said, let me think about it, you know. So I get in touch with uh, well, some of my colleagues at Eurovision TV because that's where I used to work for them. And I knew about the the archive project that the EPU were working on trying to source the best possible copies of every contest. And I said, you know, who's your contact at the BBC? Because I think I've got something of interest. So I got the details, emailed the person at the BBC and said, look, I've got this audio of really high quality. How about matching it up with the pictures of the 1962 Eurovision and giving you a near complete version of the program? And Dick Fiddy, the BFI, also sort of like supported me in that you know, bed if you like. You know, just to prove to the BBC I wasn't some sort of nutter, <laughs> didn't know what he was doing. So anyway, they all agreed and we also agreed to keep quiet about it, the discovery. So that was great, uh, sent the sound files off to the BBC and that was just before I think called COVID-19 struck, which meant that it was no longer top of the priorities to do this reconstruction because of course engineers weren't necessarily at the workplace or working from home etc., other programs had priorities. So it did take a while before eventually they sent me through. Well, even before that, they sent was an exchange of emails. I'm going, what's happening? Where is it? What's the update? And they're going, well, we've got our engineers got some bits where there's picture and no sound, and vice versa. I said, okay. So you do have to realize that on a reel-to-reel tape, this size, there comes a point where you have to turn the tape over when you're recording. So there will be. Short gaps. I said there are two short gaps. Uh, one occurs between the Dutch and French entries and the others during the interval, which is less of a concern because bang the middle of the interval that, you know, that can easily be restored. <clears throat> so that was one problem solved. And then I said, uh, you do realize that there was a power cut in the middle of the 1962 Eurovision Song Contest. And um, Dutch television, all they simply did was snip, snip. And they snipped out the power cut, the black outfit. So it went from France to Norway almost seamlessly. But in actual fact, what happened tonight was was about 90 seconds of nothing except this temporary fault card. So what will happen when you see this reconstruction is that there will be 90 seconds roughly uh, after the French song, of which there's no picture. But you will continue to hear David Jacobs commentary and hear how he fills in. And then it picks up again so that's how it will look and appear to the audience so really there's only 30 seconds missing which is the 30 seconds between the dutch and the french entry whereas you don't get david jacobs commentary because that's the point where the tape has been turned the actual tape has been turned over so that's the only bit that's truly missing at the end of the day so Setting up for say I've sat that for about two years, uh, and then during the summer, I've been sort of pestering big every so often. Are we going to do anything with Eurovision tape? Are we going to do anything with Eurovision tape? And eventually, I said, Yeah, so we're going to do something in the autumn. So we're going to maybe have making a big event out of it. So one is rescreening the 1962 Eurovision, and the second session will be a panel discussion and eclipse program talking about the changing face of Eurovision over the over the
0: decades. And that's going to be happening at BFI on the 22nd. Now, I know that you are, as well as a Eurovision fan, also quite a big fan of Doctor Who. And, well, I'd say a big fan of classic Doctor Who, if we're going to be more precise. Let's not <laughs> open I would, I would that can your... of worms now, <laughs> OK? Let's just, let's just, yeah, the concept of Doctor Who. Indeed. But that is one of the programmes where Missing Believed Wiped at the BFI has shown number of things they've found old episodes that were believed lost i think um the one that immediately springs to mind is the enemy of the world which is an old patrick brown episode and as a doctor who fan you must feel you know, the excitement that you got through that watching that process and now with your revision you get to be on the other side of the process the finder the detective how did that feel i suppose it's a bit like that's I, I, as you say, I'm a Doctor Who fan, and the big dream I think of a lot
1: of Doctor Who fans is to discover a missing episode. Death Planet Part Four. Death Planet <laughs> Exactly. You know, it's you know, it'd be great. I mean, that'd be my dream to discover a missing Doctor Who episode. But we know the chances are probably pretty slim as years go past. So to actually actually be associated with uh, recovering. Or rest- help to restore a missing contest, Eurovision song contest, is probably for me the
0: next best thing after that. So yeah, I'm thrilled to bits, and I'm thrilled that people are going to be able to see and enjoy it on Saturday. What about sitting down when that digital copy was sent back to you and Tadeo M rang out? Well, funny enough, that, that you just draw uh, my
1: attention to something else. On the audio file, the opening theme that Tadeo as you say, is there, but on the, on the Dutch film print, it's absent. It starts immediately after that. So in the restoration, it will actually start after TDA on film print, although sound-wise, it, it does actually exist. But obviously I was anxious to how well, how good would match up sound and picture. Now, would it be out of sync in places? You know, I was worried about that. But it isn't. It's, it's Perfect as you can expect it to be. And it sounds great over my laptop. It sounds great watching on TV. I just can't wait to see how it's going to sound in, the, in NFT One, you know, how it's going to sound over the speakers. Will it live up to the same expectations? But you have to bear in mind that this restoration isn't the same as, oh, I keep going back to it, forgive me, going back to two restorations. Because they're this commercial value and upgrading the picture and getting the sound as good as you can. There's no commercial value for the BBC to do a full restoration of 1962 Eurovision. It won't see a commercial release, it'll never be out in DVD, because there's too many rights issues with music and broadcasters, et cetera, to, to overcome. So it is just the basic restoration of taking this direct line recording. So it's a very good recording audio wise and matching with the existing pictures from, from Dutch television print. So that is that's your restoration.
0: But we also have to remember, that Eurovision is such a cultural artifact, such a reflection of the year that is recorded in, that even for research purposes, the, the audio, the style of commentary, the visuals, from an archival point of view, this is very, very rich. Oh,
1: indeed. Indeed. I mean you see how the changes over the years. I mean, there's only about 30 seconds between each song. It's amazing how much information David Jacobs gets over it in 30 seconds and how virtually perfect he stops literally as the conductor's doing the downbeat. and you think, how did he squeeze all that in and not talk over the song? And he doesn't talk over any of the entries, which is amazing because some you think. He's never going to get that all in before the music starts, and he does somehow. It's uh, quite remarkable to watch.
0: Yeah. Now, we're recording this before the BFI event, uh, so things like the panel discussion, the clip show, well, maybe we'll read about them online. But just in broad strokes, what is that panel going to look to talk about as well? Well, the, the, the main confirmed guest at the moment is
1: Rachel hashtag who is the lead commissioner for Eurovision 2023. So she'll be talking about the challenges facing the BBC and staging it next year. So, and she's, I think she was previously ahead uh, of delegation in 2019. Her. So her contribution will be lifted on the last few years. We've got a composer we hope is going to be there, uh, subject to work commitments. That's Stephanie De Sykes, who wrote two UK entries in 1978 and 1980, and actually makes a distinction of being the most successful female Composer of for UK entries in Eurovision song contest, I've done two. All the other people have written two or more. Have all been men, so she holds that unique position. So she'll be talking about not just the Eurovision contribution, but how the music industry itself has changed over the years, and that'll tie in with how Eurovision has changed. Fingers crossed! I'm still working, hoping we're going to get performer as well, so we can sort of cover the whole gamut of starting with a song, starting with a composer, should I say? Moving on to the song, moving on to the production side of things. Now that's all changed over the decades. And then there's going to be a clips program, uh, which we're working furiously on. <laughs> I put forward a lot of suggestions as to material, some rare archive material. Some has been retrieved from private archives. Uh, some will not be broadcast quality that come from domestic formats, which means they'll never be broadcast on television in the atmosphere of the PFI that it can be shown. I don't want to over-promise as to what we are showing or not, because that will depend on the final edit. There's lots of stuff, fingers crossed, going way back that fans will be able to enjoy.
0: And that really speaks to the fact that Eurovision changes every single year. And it might be some years there's just like small changes between you know 62 and 63. There's a huge technological jump going on there but if you look at say something say like 2015 to 2016 there's a little bit less in terms of change but every year is a step forward in technology and presentation in culture the music the the, the the outfits and the attitudes yeah i mean i would say it has evolved i mean dick
1: fitty uses the expression it's mutated but i've been very evolved over the years and then there's tiny little touches you know i mean with the bbc obviously you've got a great big one in 1968. that's a huge change then you get little subtle changes like say in 77 having flags on the scoreboard that's the first time that was done just a small little change then you look at 1998 when it was stationed in Birmingham again small little change by putting the name of the country you know imprinted you know on, on each song and that's continued ever since so there are these little small subtle
0: changes and some great big ones that whack in you know. And I know that you've taken a forensic interest in the history of the United Kingdom and Eurovision Song Contest because that's the title of your series of books. Indeed. Indeed, I've written four books and the
1: fifth one on the way. Hopefully the fifth one will be out next year to tie in with a certain event that's happening next May in this country. And uh, yeah,
0: do you want a full story behind those books? I think it would be because, yeah, we all look forward to Eurovision and there's things that constantly changes, but... For me, that tapestry of reflection that the contest has, I think, is very important. It's not a straightforward narrative retelling of the contest, is it? You no, know, it's a sort of book you can dip into. You don't have to start at the beginning, finish at the end. You can dip into a particular year
1: or a particular section that takes your interest. I mean, if we go back to how actual actually all started. Was I obviously there's lots of information around about the actual Eurovision Song Contest can back to the first one in 1956, but there was less information around on the early UK national finals how those songs get selected. It was fairly actually fairly sketchy, but I knew that the information would be in the BBC written archives in Gavisham. So I thought, oh, if only I can get into those archives and have a, a little dig around and see what you know, see what I can find out. So I got well, I research, first of all, about the archives, and there's only really two ways you can access the BBC Written Archives. One is to be writing a university thesis, and the other is to be doing a book. Now, there's no way I was going to do a university thesis. That's quite beyond me. So I thought, doing a book? Hmm, I know people who publish Doctor Who books. See, I get that stuff, Doctor Who reference in again. tell is publishing. And I know that the, the, uh, the director's there. So I got in touch with them and said, look, uh, could you just say that you're going to commission a book from me? I can then show it to the BBC Written Archives. That gives me the access. I can rummage around, get all the information I want. Thank you very much. And I said, but we don't actually need to actually do the book, but just that you know, foot in the door, get me in the door. So they replied and said, yes, Gordon, we'll do that for you. But do you know what? We actually like the idea. Of doing a book on Eurovision, it's not great. Didn't expect that's an unexpected bonus. So yes, I get into the archives, sort of got all the information I wanted out of there. Did some interviews with various people behind the scenes, artists, composers, etc., conductors, and assembled it all from 1956. I think at that point it was maybe 2010. Presented it to the publishers and went, "Golden, that's great, but it'd be like posting a housebreak." So everybody, (laughs) how about we propose you split it into different volumes, different decades, roughly. That way you'll get more royalties because you've got more books coming out and you'll build it up. And that's what happened. So the first volume was the fifties and sixties. Then we moved on decade after decade following that. And I said, now about to do the first decade, well, not about to finish off doing the first decade of the 21st century next year. And it seemed to have been very
0: well received, seemed quite popular and uh, yeah, but a lot of hard work. Going into the archives, was there, were there any big surprises?
1: Oh, I've nice. back 12 years as to when i probably probably first into the archives. Something Some years there's lots and lots of stuff you can find out about, and there's other years where it's like bare minimum information. When, for example, going back to fifty-six. Now, I know that's not truly Eurovision, for you know, because it was the Festival of all the British Popular Songs in nineteen fifty-six. It selected an, uh, an entry that didn't go into Eurovision because it was selected months afterwards. But it has its the whole UK participation has its origin in that contest. And you go through that, and they've got paperwork on the set design, the props, the costumes, stuff—really you know, detailed information. Most of the heats have kept the scores of all individual juries. And then you've got other years like, say, 57, 59, 60 Queer, just the basic information, you know, no record of the scores. And you think, oh, I'd like to know how all those juries voted and whether the song won it by a landslide or whether it's scraped through, etc. So, yes, it, it does vary from year to year. So, that's probably say, surprising in one way.
0: Do you know how much that archive compares to, like, say, Sweden or Norway?
1: I couldn't make a direct comparison with, with Sweden and Norway because I have no idea what their archives are like. But I have been at the BU, of course, when I worked at Eurovision TV, Eurovision TV and I've been in the archives in Geneva and had a little rummage round there. Very limited time to do it. And it's interesting because sometimes I will see things that's been retained by the BBC, and then I'll see the other side of it from the EBU. And little things you just find out. uh, For example, United Kingdom, the BBC were actually the the first broadcaster down to stage the 1958 contest. They were supposed to be doing it. So I think it went back to that principle which you saw in the early years of junior Eurovision of a different broadcaster each year, regardless of winners. So you had Switzerland doing 56, Germany in 57. It should have been the UK in 58. Now, for some reason, and I've forgotten what the reason is, and I was out back, looking it all up again off the top of my head. The BBC decided to drop out, they couldn't do it. And I said, how about trying the Netherlands? But since they won it in 57, why did you ask them to, to stage it instead? Which they did, as, as you know. And then that sl- started that tradition of the previous years when wow. hosting the following edition. You know.
0: And of that tradition and expectations and emotion is built.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So things that surprised me, you know. Oh, and having seen sort of the memos from one side, then you see it from the other side, you know, what, what the attitude of the EBU was, and agreeing or disagreeing on various things. You know. Yeah. Fascinating stuff for someone like me. And hopefully the readers of my book find all that fascinating as well. The main thing you'll notice about 1962 is just how small the venue is compared to the arenas now. I mean, you know, you, the city now is about like ten thousand seat arena at least to be able to, to stage the contest. In Luxembourg in 62, the actual audience, and David Jacobs actually says the number, which will shock people. And I think it often merits it's two hundred and forty people in the audience. The BFI where it was screened on Saturday, can see about 480. So there there could potentially be double the size of the actual audience watching it on the big
0: screen on Saturday than actually watch the event itself in the Hall in 1962. It sounds like a fantastic event. It's going to be a one-off. And if you're listening to this on the podcast, you've missed it. So, what's going to happen to that footage now? Maybe, maybe there will be an exclusive screening in the Euro Village when we get up in, to Liverpool in May. But um, <laughs> Gordon's now waving at me. Please don't ask that question. No, it's actually something that
1: has been suggested mm. and something I really would like to try and pursue. That it, it gets another airing, if you like, at, probably at a cinema in Liverpool next May during Eurovision time. It's something I'm going to push for. And try and get done. A lot of that will depend how successful Saturday goes at the BFI. I mean, if if nobody turns up to watch it, then probably it's not going to encourage people to, to stage it in Liverpool next spring. On the other hand, if, we, if it's packed out it's a
0: sellout. Another chance for something of take two and another go at it. Well, we're recording this beforehand, but airing it afterwards. So there's a bit of time travel mumbo jumbo magic here, so we can manifest a full house. Right now, Gordon, and because of causality, it will have already happened. Indeed, we're getting on to that timey-wimey stuff, aren't we? Wibbly-wobbly. Who again? Wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Yeah. It was you who stole my dad's keys. <laughs> oh dear, we're all over the place now. Well, yes, with the wibbly-wobbly, uh, let's just uh bring that into a nice gentle landing. But uh, Gordon, in all of the UK history, everybody knows the UK Entries. But in terms of the national final songs, you'll probably be on top of more than more of them than most people. So out of all of that, which one would you say people should listen to that they might not have heard before? Oh, my goodness me. That, that is a good question. I'm going to pick the
1: one that I actually voted top in 1979. Because it was actually on the Song of Europe during 1979. Uh, And, of course, that got out due to strike action. The actual winner ended up in Mary Ann from uh, Black Lace. But the one that I actually voted my top place was uh, the Nolan Sisters
0: with Harry, my Honolulu lover. That was the one I picked. And we will see if we can find an online copy for that to you all legally listen to. And we'll link to it back from our website, www.escinsight.com. Uh, those of you who are looking to say thank you to the BFI or to look at any more of the 100 years of the BBC sessions, the BFA website, Gordon, is uh,
1: www.bfi.org.uk.
0: And for those people who want the complete history of everything of the United Kingdom at the Eurovision Song Contest 1956 to very soon to be 2010, they can order it at my publishers, which is www.telos.co.uk. And for those of you who know what Telos is, that's another Doctor Who reference we've snuck in. It is indeed. The home planet of the Cybermen. I'm not going to worry you. I thought it was the other one. Oh yeah, I mean it could be more on this. Yes, I was forgetting about that one. <laughs> yeah, that's right because two home planets. I was sitting yeah, there as a right. prank, science, but no, hold on. There's more. Th- there's more than yeah. uh, and and once again, Eurovision slides into Doctor Who territory. So we should just leave it in that there. Gordon, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Good to chat to you. Uh, Thank you all out there for listening. We will have uh, more podcasts, more interviews, more news, all the usual shenanigans as we head up towards Liverpool 2023, and the website www.eseinsight.com. If you're stumbling over us from other places, then you'll find the podcast in your various app stores, directories, indexes, such as ESE Insight or Eurovision Insight. And if you're already there, do consider leaving a rating up to five stars or even a review. It helps other people find the podcast and enjoy the wonders of the Eurovision Song Contest as we head forward to the entire season. The selections, the songs, over 10,000 submitted to broadcasters across the continent and beyond. 800 making it to the television. 30 to 40-odd going to be making it to the semi-finals. 26 to the Saturday night. One song left standing. Isn't it glorious, Gordon? All those numbers yeah. all over the place, yeah. Just comprehending it all taking it all in yeah looking forward to it. back in the uk it's coming home no that'll be next year after switzerland winning 23 and we go to lugano because eurovision like the cybermen has more than one home more than one or two planets let's just go for the guitars <laughs> ESC Insight chat over coffee was with you and Spence and Gordon Roxborough. Find out more at www.escinsight.com and support at slash ESC Insights.